to invest with with a question to you Ivan. if uh, let's say to start with would you start in the stock market most certainly i think i think firstly if if someone gives me a few hundred thousand of pounds or dollars or whatnot i should be a very grateful and thankful person because that 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 would certainly be a uh, a tasty gift as they say um i think in, in terms of investing i think it really depends on what the exact so maybe to kick things off we'll start it off at at a hundred thousand so mm-hmm. i think with a hundred thousand um pounds it's 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 really in terms of where it fits into my personal life i think with that money it's not necessarily something that can um can help in terms of getting on the property ladder i mean it can certainly help with getting a property deposit but by no means is it necessarily a way of 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 sort of funding my own house if i want to get a place in london for example but i think a hundred thousand would be a lovely bedrock to start in terms of investing in the stock market so i think first thing to do before we jump into investing and seeing what we want to buy the key thing to look at is firstly structuring as in how we're going to um, how are we going to structure our investments in a way that it's it's most efficient, mainly from a tax perspective, and also you know, um, yeah, admittedly this this may be thinking a few steps ahead, but but if you ever want to go down and think about inheritance, you know, if you ever want to give this money away, you don't want you know sort of your your sort of future kids or grandchildren or whatnot to be hit with a a large tax event, you know, for all the money that you spent your your life working so hard or kindly inherited as we we teed off um so so speaking of that so i think the easiest low-hanging fruit would be to put it into an isa um so an isa you get twenty thousand pounds every year and an isa is is effectively a a structure or or a wrapper which shields the your investments from taxes so Every yeah. time you buy, hopefully make a gain on investment and sell, you don't have to pay capital gains tax. And then same thing to any income produced from your investments, whether these be in coupons or in dividends, mm-hmm. these would be um, shielded. But obviously at ISA, this is mainly being a stocks and shares ISA, um, would would be um, a stocks and share ISAs would be would have to be stocks and shares. It would have to be liquid assets. So you can't you can't put yeah. e-liquid assets like sort of property and paintings or whatnot inside. But I guess that raises a question there is, you know, would you put the full 25, I think, thousand into it or would you put a bit less to kind of take into account the possible dividend and growth and make sure that that stays tax-free as well? No, no, it, it's it's 20,000 a year in initial mm-hmm. capital. But it's that idea where if that 20,000 grows to whatever number, that's completely shielded. So, mm-hmm. especially if you get into the habit of topping up your ISA over your lifetime, you know, that can quickly multiply. So, if you think about it, if we start off with 100,000 investment, theoretically, assuming we keep the rest in cash, it would take us five years to, to roll the full amount into an ISA, which is, I think, something which I personally recommend strongly that you do because um, ta- taxes just creates an additional layer of complexity and friction to investments which um which 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 you want to avoid but having said that governments too have created ways eg these isas um to 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 make it more efficient in terms of saving and and also to some degrees to encourage people to save and invest in stock markets 
So I, I think that I think that's a very interesting point. There's actually government are in a way pushing people to save money and invest money and mm-hmm. uh, I guess in a way help the economy and help uh, help the help the companies themselves by by putting them on the stock market and you know carrying all that out. So it is an interesting view that you know it has been something that's risky and it is in a, in a way and could lead to losing all of the money. It is something that governments are pushing. Maybe not not directly, but hundred percent, hundred percent. I think it, it, it. I mean, there there are a couple different ways to see it. Um, the first thing being, you know, you can see it as uh, purely as a way as we, we've discussed as a way of governments encouraging mm-hmm. savings. But secondly, too, I think it's it's also it's also taking out a lot of the stress in trying to invest initially, because you know if you do actually go down. The, the root of um, you know wanting to have a much larger, much more significant private or, or general investment account, as we call call it in the um, industry, so a GIA, mm-hmm. um, which which would have the full tax impact. It, it it's one where it creates additional complexity because you know if that that would mean you have to calculate your taxes every year, or in most cases you have to hire an accountant to figure out your taxes. So you know this just makes an ISA where you just don't have to think about taxes just makes it much cleaner and and more straightforward for people to start investing. Yeah, and I think um, you might correct me if I'm wrong on here, but I think it's if you make more than five hundred pounds from savings or any kind of form of savings or investing, that's where taxing that that's where the tax come in, isn't it? It's anything above five hundred pounds, I think, if it is outside of an ISA. Um. Yeah, I, I believe it's, it's slightly more. Thing. Um. I, I believe um, it's it's twelve thousand is the um, for capital gains. The, uh, so twelve thousand tax, uh, but there mm-hmm. is an additional tax if if you've got uh, let's say a few thousand pounds in savings, and the interest rates from the bank savings, which is if it does mean that you make five hundred pounds uh, in a year, means yeah. that you'll have to pay, but you have to pay tax on anything over that five hundred pounds. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's um, just an additional piece of tax that I know is uh, has come out from the banks at least. Fair, fair like. enough. Um, yeah, I'm 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 not too clear on that part. Um, but I think it's certainly something we can look into down the road. But another thing you mentioned is kind of structure, and uh, I guess how to structure someone's investments is when we look at the stock market. Even with, if we don't look at real estate or paintings or anything else, if we just look at fund at stock at the stock market, there's a very very large amount of different stocks and shares that could be purchased like index funds uh, you know uh, there's a whole plethora of options there for people um would you recommend going with index funds to start with or you know something like an sp500 fund or so, certainly i think i think um you know, if you look at a different investment products i, I would say if you want to simplify it to its t there's really three key investments which um which 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 you can look into um so so this is purely focused on equity investments i appreciate that you know we could have fixed income and whatnot but um but 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 for sort of private individual investors normally people don't touch those um but so in terms of equities there's a straightforward buying single stock single line and then there are funds so funds you can have passive funds and then you can have active funds. So mm-hmm. funds in general are a structure 
which you know, effectively it's it's a wrapper of a form, but it what it does it it allows you to invest in a basket of stocks in in a single line effectively in just one nice simple thing and the surcharge for these is is normally fairly minimal especially when we're talking about these passive etfs which which can be you know which which yeah management annual sort of management costs could be sort of you know, in the basis points of you know, anywhere sort of from 10 10 up basis points so that's 0.1 percent up which is very minimal so as I said, there's two key sorts of funds. There's passive and there's active. Passive yeah. is one where it's very straightforward. It tr- tends to track an index. Um, and and it's one where, you know, it, it just follows an index. So whether this be S&P 500, you say, or in the UK, FTSE 100, um, or if you want something more global with like the MSCI world. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side too, you have what's called active managers. So active managers is one where, there's a person sort of actually sort of sat there or, or more likely a team, um, a team of fund management experts, which actually pick actively pick and choose which investments goes into the fund. So they, what they're trying to do is create what we call alpha on the portfolio. So they're normally trying to beat whatever benchmark index they're building off of. Um, so going into, I think, what, what you should invest in, I think it, this really reflects as to what sort of investor you are from a risk perspective first. But secondly, to, you know, what builds into your risk. I think a lot of it is, you know, your ability to take downsides, but it's also your knowledge and understanding of a subject. Because, yeah. you know, I, I mean, if you're an expert, if you're a financial expert, for example, who's managing his own personal investments, all right, understandably, you can take a bit more risk because you understand what you're investing in much clearer. Whereas if you're someone which is really not familiar or, or, or someone who's not really touched the financial world before, it's much safer and much more palatable to approach it from a more simplistic standpoint. And that, that would most likely start off with passive funds. Yeah. And then I can imagine you know, as you grow more confident and understand the investment world more, you can look at active funds. And then once you have stronger and stronger conviction, in you know specific areas, specific stock names and whatnot. That's when you can go down into individual stock lines. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And another thing you mentioned at the very start is uh, kind of fixed versus equity investing. Yeah. Um, would you like to delve in a little bit deeper into those two and the difference between the two? Certainly. So I think in terms of sort of different financial instruments, there are really there, there are two main well. You can argue there's more because if you take into currency, that's a third. But in terms of investing from a simplistic standpoint too, um, there, there are two real core building blocks to a portfolio. So the first being fixed income or debt-driven mm-hmm. products. And then the secondly being equities or stocks as we traditionally know it. So I think firstly touching on equities, which is the much more straightforward um, investment to understand, that's effectively where you own stocks or shares or um, of a company so you know if, if you want to buy apple and apple stock for example you're literally owning a slice of apple yeah but then what you have on the flip side too is fixed income which is debt so in essence it's a bit like like loaning the, the company a, um, some money so mm-hmm. um companies so whether these be corporates which is which is or even sovereigns which is the largest debt market this is where they'd effectively write what's known as a bond issue. 
and these yep. bond issues can be um you know whatever size normally they're quite large so normally they're in the billions so take an example um if apple wants to raise debt funding for example and it's very common for corporates to raise debt funding purely mm-hmm. as a way because it, it it is the it it is a cheaper way to to raise capital versus equities because equities you have to give away a portion of the business whereas through debt through fixed income you have to um you you're, you're not giving away money but instead what you're doing is people are effectively loaning you money in exchange for uh, uh, an annual or semi-annual coupon, so interest rate effectively, you know, that, that's the cost of the loan, and then you also have the maturity date. So, for example, a company like Apple may may rate month to raise one billion dollars, um, and they might do a five-year bond issue, of which they'll pay you, let's say, one percent coupon every year. So, I'm making up these numbers as a bit of a caveat. I'm making these numbers up um, as I go, but these are. These are realistically how a corporate would would sell that. So once they've released this fixed income products into the market, they can be freely traded effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's that idea where where um, the price of the of the bond can move, um, you know, depending on the risk associated with the with the company repaying the coupon. Yeah. So, so if Apple were to ever not pay their annual coupon of that one percent, as I as I said in the example, they would effectively default. So mm-hmm. when when a bond defaults, that that that's a very bad reflection on the company, and that's that's certainly a great sign um, of uncertainty. And normally, that's one where administrators would be called and and and. And whether restructuring or bankruptcy proceedings would have to take yeah. place after, because um, fixed income is almost like a bank. It's well, it's not almost. It's similar to a bank loan in theory, I guess it yeah. would be. Yeah, precisely. I think I think it's it's like a loan of any form, you know, whether it be, um, whether you want to sort of compare it to like a mortgage in your house, for example. Yeah. Um, but instead yeah. of instead of you know having having just a mortgage on a small house, which is directly with the bank. This mm. is one where it's in the billions of dollars the loan, Sec- and secondly, too, it can be freely traded, so you can buy and sell effectively these bond notes. Yep, and I think, as you said, this when it comes to bonds and things like this, and bond notes specifically, when companies are trying to raise funding, it's if it's a big organization like Apple, it's you very rarely going to be a few hundred thousand. It's going to be millions or billions. Time. Precisely, precisely. Um, I mean, uh, to to do a bond issuance, um, I mean, although there is no hard and fast minimum size, the reality is most of them would be in the hundreds of millions, um, or at least the tens of millions. You 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 never do a bond issue for 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 one or two million because that that's just yeah. way too small from a structuring standpoint. And I think it's also not that interesting to a lot of. I guess investors who would be looking at it, because it's, um, I've heard of a couple of think, instances where uh, some actually investing companies were looking at, were you know were purchasing kind of the bonds more as an organization. Some something like, for example, J.P. Morgan Chase, for example. Yes. Well, something of a million or half a million might not be interesting to them. Certainly, I think I think it's. I mean, sorry, the the reasons why a financial institution would buy. 
bonds, I think there's a multitude of reasons, you know, whether you're buying it for other clients or they're also trying to support a book or book build. Um, Mm -hmm. So so you've got to remember that all these debts are typically um, syndicated by by a bank or a group of banks. So effectively, the, you know, a group of banks would, would be the one fronting the money mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. Know, to organize the deal effectively. And then in turn, they'll, they'll sell it to their, their clients. So these clients could be corporate, other corporates. They could be pension funds. They, they, they could be any buyers out there. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then the banks themselves could want to trade it. They see an opportunity to buy debt for, for, for cheap and then sort of resell it for higher prices. They'll, they'll, there's always mm-hmm. ways to trade around it. Um, but that's, I, I think that that might be a, a, a bit of a sort of a complex and convoluted area to speak yeah. of later. Definitely um, gone down the hole on that one. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> so I think, I think reversing back to, um, in terms of investments, you know, how, how do you approach it? Um, and this is one where, you know, I think every individual is unique. So there's no one magic formula as to how they have to, they should invest. Um, it's one where you have to do your own research. You have to understand your position. And it, it, it's one where you've got to see what's right for you and more importantly, what you're comfortable with. Because I think one thing about investments is that it's got to be something that you, you believe in and more importantly, that something that you can go to bed in. Um, I mean, I've seen a lot of investors which sort of jump into the market sort of overly aggressively, um, you know, go in and just lose a bunch of money and sell out a few months later and, and effectively just give up. You know, so you don't you, you, you want to not get carried away by mm. by sort of get rich quick schemes or, or get rich quick connotations and mindsets. Yeah. You've got to understand that an investment account is a long-term proposition. And by long-term, I mean you're going to have to think five years plus. And it's a sort of one where you have to accept and understand that there are risks. You know? No matter how good or no matter what you invest in, there's always a risk that things can go up, um, mm. go wrongly. You know, if, if you want to buy Apple stocks, for example, there's always a risk that Apple could be could be a flop next year, you know, or, or, or something could go wrong, which can wipe out the company. Although understandably, it's it's relatively low. I can you can never say fully that that the risk is zero. You can never be certain nothing of a company going bankrupt. It's you know this is something proven years and years again, over time where uh, you organizations all of a sudden closing down just because maybe they've had a financial problem which they didn't put on their books. Or 100%. recent than before their books are updated and made public. Um, yeah. There's a lot of things like this. So as you said, I think it's a lot of people do fall into the trap of trying to get rich quick and seeing how to do it. Um, I think one of the ways that people do it sometimes that you know some have had to it work out for them, but day trading, I I know more people who've lost money than made money doing it. I don't know people yeah. who made money with that, but I know a lot more who lost. And I think a lot of the time, the problem is that, um, you know, you see the stock drop. There's a bit of a panic going, if I get out now, at least I only lost X and not more. Wait for the long term, as you said, and uh, maybe play and say, okay, rather than playing for five years, can I keep it in there for 10 years, 15 years? Because that's, that's, where, that's where you see the growth over time. The money is this, but it does 
go up with as inflation does as well everything kind of keeps going up and up so the market is as well yeah 100 percent, 100 percent. um but i i think yeah i i think so when people say the market should go up i mean yeah i mm. think that that is that has been the natural trajectory but as i said you know whether whether a you're in the right market you know there are markets which have certainly been pulled back so if you look at yes. the uk market for example that that has lagged the U.S. for the past past sort of five years, well, Brexit mainly. So, so it, I mean, I, I'm sure it's one where you can always say it'll eventually go back up, or it'll fail, or it'll be it'll go bust. <laughs> so, um, yeah. <laughs> um, well, this this puts us nicely, I think, onto another possible topic, and that's diversification. In that, you know, yeah. if you are looking at investing, it's it is a case of trying to to spread. To spread the risk as much as possible to minimize it. Certainly, that's true. But I think I think diversification. There's always a funny argument because mm. diversification mm. can sometimes be an excuse for not having having a good view, having a good sort of um, sort sort of forward-looking trajectory of where you, mm-hmm. you think investments would head. Um, I mean, there there is always concerns of what we call over diversification. Where you've yeah. effectively diluted your portfolio with so many different lines, where even if one position does, you know, 10, 20% performance, because it's such a small portion of the portfolio, it doesn't, mm-hmm. it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't move the needle enough. So um, it's all about having conviction at the end of the day, and also being able to understand the areas of risk. And then having the different levers, e.g., the different positions within your diversification, where um, you know if if one area does you know, pulls back, hopefully you have something else which is um, oppositely correlated or not correlated, and one which should hold its own ground. I have to say, I very when when I was starting with kind of just on my stocks and says I saw I've very closely almost made that mistake of I yeah. looked at diversification diversify and buy a bit of everything almost and um, as you said that's definitely not the right way to go as well so um, what's uh, you know if we if we got came back to the start I guess if we've got a hundred thousand pounds to play with just as an idea would you say having kind of two big companies two big tech companies having something in oil having a few in what would be what would be your, your spread if, if, if we're to look at it roughly just as an estimate. So as an estimate. So I, I think I think maybe to set the scene a bit before we dive mm. into it. So hundred thousand pounds. Um so I assume I'm a long term investor, mm-hmm. mainly because you know I'm relatively young and I see this uh, money as as effectively just a long term pot, which you know almost I, I want to invest it and you know hopefully in sort of ten years or so when yeah. You know, I decide, all right, might it might be time to buy another property down the road. This is the the the, the funds that I'll tap into. So what exactly. that I, means? I think look at it because we could look at it as you know, someone maybe bought a house when they were I don't know, let's say twenty five or so, 30, mm-hmm. 25, 30. They're yeah. at the of being about forty five, fifty, and they're thinking, yep, for about ten years, I can uh, I can put this money away. You know, maybe you maybe you've paid off the more you've got equity from the house you can take out and invest. Yeah. Uh, around 100,000 to play with for 10 years, let's say. Fantastic. So, um, I mean, with, with such a long sort of time span, 
and one way, you know, strictly speaking, you don't have to rely or there's no potential to, to require these funds in the near to midterm. We can mm. really dial up the risk in the portfolio. So I think the most straightforward would be to have a 100% equity portfolio to begin with. Then mm-hmm. you start, then you start. So um, you look, I, I mean, I personally look from a very sort of top down perspective in terms of how you invest. So, you know, if you're looking from a top down perspective, all right, firstly, you start saying, all right, how much of these equities do I want to be in developed markets? You know, developed mm-hmm. markets being, you know, your, your, your sort of sort of go to Western countries. So Europe, US being the main ones. And then yeah. how much you want in what's called emerging markets countries mm-hmm. so um it's that idea where emerging market countries you know as as a more growing economy um a, a younger economy which is growing and hopefully maturing down the road um you see it much more longer term upside but where yeah. there's always the potential for upside there's also there's also greater risk to come to mm-hmm. follow so and then on the on the other side too you look at developed markets which tend to be the mature areas so, you know, US, Europe, and, and UK. Mm-hmm. And then those tend to be ones where um, you see the much larger sort of mega cap companies, you know, the companies which are the, the largest companies in the world. These are what we call developed markets. So from my perspective, I would have the majority in developed markets. Um, and, and this is one you can always play around with. And, and um, depending on the specific circumstance, it's it's a um it's it's really it's really an opinion and also just a how you'd put the um how do you put the uh, the portfolio together so i would have personally i would have 70 percent within developed markets and 30 percent within emerging market uh emerging markets so how, how I base this off is you know, one of the things is we always we also use a building block. So in this mm-hmm. case, the building block would be the what we call the MSCI world. So that is effectively a global stocks index. So yeah. it's um, I mean I'm sure you can look up the methodology much clearer, but it's effectively imagine if you were to take a basket of stocks from all around the world. You know how would it look like? And these basket of stocks would likely be market cap weighted, or so. Um, you know, so depending on, so a bigger stock, for example, would have a bigger proportion in this portfolio. So off top, that is very easy to guess what the biggest one would be. It'll likely be sort of Apple, which is the, the 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 company, the largest market cap in the world. And then it trickles down. So in an MSCI world, I if off top of my head, if I remember rightly, it's about fifteen percent emerging markets, and the rest. Okay. being um being uh developed markets having said that you know i see that more as like from a portfolio manager's standpoint or i see i see a bit more a clear trajectory for emerging markets going forward hence i like to weight it up slightly so we start off with a 70 30 portfolio um and greg i appreciate this may come a lot more complex now versus no 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 that's fine versus a simple answer here yeah. Anyway, if uh, you know, I've got another question for you afterwards. Just well, straight after this, actually, on uh, on the 30 percent split. In fact, fantastic. Um, so, do you want me to throw it throw it in the pile? Uh, well, the maybe ho- well, maybe if I expand slightly more on the seventy percent. So, um, so starting off with emerging markets, um, 
I, I mean, I, I'd personally of sort of of that twenty percent, I'd put it in what we call gem funds, so global emerging market funds. So again, these are funds mm-hmm. which which are not uh, country or sectors. Well, they are they are specific to emerging markets, but they don't have specific areas or specific countries they have to put in. So these are uh, funds which would search for the best macro and um, stock specific opportunities within the emerging markets and take advantage of that. So it's yeah. also for 20% in, in what we call these global emerging market funds. And then the further 10%, that's where I think you can really start getting a bit more nitty gritty, a bit more sort of granular in terms of what, mm-hmm. what excites you and where you see potential in a long-term investment. So with the 10%, would you, would you recommend going high risk, high reward? So, you know, taking the chance that maybe the companies won't do as well as you hope and they might drop out, but the one or two or three that do well are going to do really well and, and do better than actually the loss you make on the others. Yeah. Um, I mean, to be honest, I, I mean, I, I think emerging markets are really naturally higher risk, higher reward. Mm-hmm. Having said that, it's one where I think you've got to be very careful about what, what stocks you pick. I mean, I would personally lean towards trying to find an active fund manager for this area because especially within emerging markets, it's one where you really need specialists within this area because A, it's so vast and there's so many different uh, geographies, You know, there's so many different companies that you have to speak to. But secondly, too, as these are relatively smaller companies, you have to think of it from a more informational standpoint. You know, how hard is it to research a company based somewhere in Vietnam, for example? Yeah. Um, and and so, so it's very important that you have specialists within these areas, which would mm-hmm. do the research and, you know, more than likely also sort of visit the companies and whatnot. So in this area, you know, I'll, I'll choose what sort of sectors or what high-level macros, which I'm really excited by. So whether these be specific countries, so um, I mean, I, I personally like, you know, sort of areas like Vietnam, um, Indonesia, although that's quite hard to invest in. Um, and then, you know, and then on flip side too, you could also look at China. China has been a very strong economy. It is the largest emerging market economy in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's one where, you know, you start seeing what excites you. I think China tech, is certainly an exciting area because you know China China is very focused at the moment in being the world leader in AI, for example. So it's one where you might have a, a fund which is specifically specializing in, you know, ch- sort of Chinese um, technology companies. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then also you can look at just more more Southeast Asia. I think Southeast Asia, Asia Pacific. There's a lot of positive growth from that area, so that that's another broader one. But again, this is things you've got to sort of research and see what what area you have the greatest conviction in. Mm. Um. So, so Mike, when we're looking at emerging markets, kind of the Western world again, mm-hmm. you mentioned a seventy thirty split for the ten years. If we increase that to fifteen years, would you change that split to sixty forty, or would you still keep it at seventy forty? Yeah, I mean, admittedly, sort of you know, thinking about ten years—that's already quite a long time. Um, I mean, admittedly, if if you felt you had a higher risk appetite, you can mm-hmm. certainly pivot it more to whether it be fifty fifty, um, or even I know so so especially when we're talking about such long term things, an yeah. easy investment to relate relate it into would be your pension. 
Because yep. especially, um, you know, if, if you're in your 20s or 30s and whatnot, you're not going to tap into your pension for another 30 years or so. So I think I, I, I know people who have 100% within emerging markets. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I personally have it at a closer to 50-50 split. But then even within that, that, that split, I'd go for more smaller cap, com- cap companies. So instead of chasing large companies, you're chasing real much smaller companies, um, you know, companies which are at a relative infancy versus versus other investments. Um, again, this is this is all about greater investment uh, upside potential, but at the yeah. same time, too, yeah. you have to accept that there is a greater risk associated to this. Exactly, so there is there's going to be a greater risk if there's. It's almost it's almost a rule of thumb, isn't it? If if there's great risk, then there's going to be some potential in there as well. You've obviously got to get some companies where there is high risk and there's no potential. You just should avoid. Uh, but there's a lot of companies where there's a lot of potential, but there's also going to come a lot of risk from them. Hundred um, percent. But I, I think at the end of the day, it's it's all about doing the research. Mm. Um, the reality is, there's no no one has a crystal ball into to say what's going to do well in the future. And it's all about you know you understanding you no. Know, everyone sort of understanding the market and also just understanding um, how they approach it and what they're comfortable with. No, that's, yeah. I think, I think that that's one of the key things is what are people comfortable with, with investing and making sure that they don't, don't go further than what they're comfortable with because it's, uh, you know, it's all good putting all of your life savings and maybe everything you've earned so far into, into a company because you believe in it. But, uh, putting everything into one company that is maybe in, in, from an emerging market or something and you've read from it and you've read an article about it is probably not a good idea because that's a very high risk and a very that's high chance but That's true. But maybe, Greg, so, maybe to bounce a question onto your angle, mm-hmm. um, you, know, you said you've got a bit of investments within, um, you know, in, in your stocks and shares, ISA. I mean, yeah. how did you approach that? I mean, because I think especially from my role too, as someone that has a studied finance in university mm-hmm. and then secondly into has worked in the industry for the past five years to some degree a lot of the terminology and a lot of the approaches has just come to me purely because of my day-to-day working life whereas yeah. for you as someone which is you know not not necessarily connected to the financial world um but i appreciate you know that you're someone which Certainly, sort of networks and you know, reads a lot about financial world. How how have you found your approach? Um, it, I think it took me a little while to actually get started with it. it. Took me definitely longer than I was hoping it would, just because what I found really difficult is finding a platform I would trust in a way. So that was one of the one of the key things for me was, uh, you know, meeting with people who have done investing and seeing what platforms they were using, and one that was recommended to me. Is Hargreaves Lansdowne, which so far has been really good. I'm not sure, you know, that mm-hmm. well, that's the one I'm using. Yeah. Um, and when I was looking at actually choosing the funds and stocks to buy, that that's kind of where uh, it kind of became a bit difficult for me because I had to look at how much money and I'm prepared to invest to invest into it. Looking at it from a perspective of someone who's still learning about it all, who's figuring it out and trying to see what works, what doesn't work. So with that in mind, I thought I'm gonna invest a small amount of money into different stocks and indexes and see what happens and just see how they behave, see how they go and see if my predictions or what I, how I think the market's going to behave are correct. And I think that was one of the key things for me was actually starting with a small amount of money 
and seeing how it works out and seeing what happens with it. So I put a little bit into uh, into a bank. Uh, I put a bit into a company that does that deals with oil and gas that's very highly connected to to the U.S. and the U.S. government. Um, I put another bit of money and I put and then I split the other the other uh, pieces of money into index uh, into into funds into index mm-hmm. funds. One of them is a retirement 30, 20, 35, I believe, and the other one is an emerging markets thing account, if I remember right. Um, so so far, I split it in a way where the the funds themselves, the indexes, had hundred pounds each, and the companies had fifty pounds each. So as I said, it was very yeah. very small amount of money actually starting with, just just trying to see what happened to it. Yeah, and the companies themselves really didn't do well at all. I I put the money into them when the dip with COVID happened, when everything kind of went down, and uh, you know we were kind of going through a recession. I thought that's probably the right best time to come in. There's a recession. There's only really one way to go: is up or it crashes completely. And putting fifty pounds into it, if it crashes, I've only lost fifty pounds. It's not the end of the world. But if it goes up, I might get a few hundred pounds out of it, and then I can actually look at investing a bit more if the market stabilizes. Um, that's kind of where I looked at this. Um, it didn't really do that well. The the other com- the company where that's actually highly linked to the U.S. As soon as Trump lost, that took a very big hit on us as well. As it's an oil and gas company, it was very highly linked to to Trump, in a way, uh, a lot more than I was expecting, and that very much proved to me that there was a piece of research that I didn't conduct, and that was that it's all good with it being linked to politics and having some uh, history with it, but what it stands currently. So I very much looked at the history and how it behaved previously, rather than at where the company's heading to, and I think that was one of the mistakes I made with that one. Um, on the other hand, the funds, the index funds that I got. They're doing very well. I'm getting returns on each one at the moment. So they've done very well. And that's kind of where I think I did more research themselves. Because I started with the two organizations. I invested into them just to see how it happens and see what documents are available and what comes out of it. Um, Then when I looked at the indexes and I went through kind of the documents available on Hargreaves, they all made a bit more sense to me. Um, and kind of understanding it a bit more. I think finance right now does mean that you know if I sit down with the same documents right now, even having six months extra of of studying and of knowledge and education and theory, means that I'll understand even more out of them. But I would, yeah. if someone's looking at starting at at investing and they haven't done it before, they're not sure about it, then just try it out of a small amount of money first. Do it maybe for a year, like I'm doing for with a small amount of money. That if it's all lost and it goes and nothing comes out of it, you're not going to lose sleep over it. You're not going to lose anything like that. But it's more more of a learning experience at this time. You know, it's I would rather spend two years learning and then uh, not have the and then make less mistakes further on, than make mistakes at the start, lose all my money, and then go well. Now I've learned, but I've lost all my money learning it, learning the basics in a way. Yeah. So that's kind of the that that's kind of the stance I've taken, and it's also one of the reasons why I decided to go into a degree in finance is because it's something that I started really getting, getting my teeth into and getting interested about it. So I'm hoping that uh, in two years' time, I've got uh, at least close close to close to the knowledge you've got about it. You know, if I can get close to it, I'd be I'd be more than happy. Um, yeah. But, uh, that obviously comes with years of experience and and everything else coming into it. So. Certainly, I think I think you touched on a very good point that fi- the financial world is so vast. Um, to some degree, it, it's it's almost something where you've got to 
sort of appreciate and understand that this is something where it's 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 going to take time to learn and it's got to be something where you learn consistently because markets move so quickly and they move on a daily basis and there's so much news flow coming out of it it's one where um you know it, it was me sort of having an, a discussion earlier this week with a colleague who's saying you know um especially you know, as he approaches retirement now he's saying oh um you know I, I want to do only two, three days a week. Having said that, he said, the issue with that is you can't keep up with the news flow because you have to read the news every single day mm-hmm. to, to, to keep on top of things. Because if you miss one day, it's almost miss, like missing a piece in the jigsaw. So it's impossible to just pick it up one day and then you know, refresh it. It's something that you have to be yeah. at it consistently. And I think yeah. the second thing maybe to touch on too quickly before before um, I'll pause, is that you know, sometimes the, the reality is it's, it's, it's always impossible to, to pick the winners all the time. I mean, you can, get, you can get a good percentage, but the reality is there are going to be some losers you know, every time in your picks and you know, not everyone always gets it right. So sometimes you have to go through the experience of you know, almost paying or losing, uh, of learning through losing um, mm-hmm. funds which you know, it sounds like an uncomfortable scenario but the reality is most investors have to go through these series of events to 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 learn from i i think you touched on a very important point there is that people i think when when anyone starts investing if they're doing it by themselves and not going to a portfolio manager or an or a firm that does the investing for them they have to start by being prepared to lose everything that they started with, with the investment. I think the first investment, you have to be prepared to lose constantly, to lose all of it, if, if anything goes wrong. Just because you're starting out and learning everything from scratch, you know, it's, as you said, it's a world that's ever-changing. And to me, that became really apparent when I, uh, when I tried day trading. When yeah. I tried doing that, when, you know, when I kicked off, first of all, it, it was going great. Um, then I put some physical money into it because I first tried it with kind of the the game money, as they call it, yeah, uh, the invisible money. Um, I decided to put, I think it was 150 of my own money into it. And when I was on it, day day in day out, I did about three four days where I was just every single day. That's all I have. That's all I did. I managed to get to I think 250 pounds. So I almost doubled my money just in a couple. Which which is great. It's you know it it showed me that reading the graphs everything like that is doable. And day trading, I think, is a is a name that's a little bit counterintuitive because sometimes you look at a stock and you go, actually, I'm going to hold this for a week or two because it makes more sense doing it that until the next dip comes. But that did prove to me that you have to be on it every single day. And as you said, there's information that comes in day in, day out. And there could be a little golden nugget of information that you find somewhere that means that maybe some of the investments you're about to make are actually not going to work and not going to happen. Um and I think that that raises another interesting point where investing in single companies is probably what a lot of people think when they think of having a stock and shares ISA. Mm-hmm. But investing into a fund that's managed is probably the better way to do it because you do have someone at the other end who's actually doing the work for you in a way. Yeah, precisely. Um, doing the work and also specialists in that field. Um, I, I think I think that's one thing which which people have to appreciate is that these are specialists within their area. Um, yeah. A lot of them have built up track records, you know, which are years long, so, so five, 10 years or whatnot, or even longer. And it's one where at the end of the day, it's, it's these nuances where you know, you're paying for someone's expertise. And when I say paying, these tend to be quite 
marginal in terms of fees. Oftentimes, as I said, they're less than a percent. Um, you know, where, whereas you know, realistically, they can't go much higher than two percent. And even if you're at that upper end boundary, that tends to be very rare, or unless you're in a very specialized niche area. Um, by specialized niche area, I, I, I could mean, um, you know, you, you're looking at um, you know, drug makers in sort of Africa or something like that, which which is quite a rare thing. So um, yeah, so so I think I think you're paying for these expertise and you're paying very little money. So it's one where certainly why why should you take the the risk and you know of trying to learn it all when you have these people doing it full time? So you might as well outsource it. Yeah, exactly. Completely. And again, this is kind of what my experience in investing has proven me as well. And I would say, you know, if if there is going to be any at the end uh i'm looking at investing you know feel free to try it out and get single buy apple if you want to apple is probably a good one or the bank you use or if there's a business you know feel free to buy it but be prepared to see losses from it just because that's that's what i've seen and that's what i've heard a lot from a lot of people whereas fun stuff into them, that's where i think there's a lot of growth to come out of that you know not to try and sell any anything to anyone obviously we're not linked to anything so uh, but that's just where I personally have seen have seen the returns. Yeah, mo- most certainly. I think I think one thing we can also touch on quickly is in terms of the platforms. I mean, you you mentioned Hargreaves Lansdowne, which is by far the largest platform in the UK um, for 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 ISAs, um, and and they they have perhaps the best library of um, sorry, like or selection of products so that means individual stocks plus also funds and whatnot um having said that they they have a tendency to be slightly expensive um mm-hmm. so i uh, maybe great you might know this but per trade i, I believe it's something like eight to ten pounds per trade so just in in transaction fees so that's something where you have to really keep in mind because depending on the sizing right um, that, yes. could, that could be a relatively large percentage. So if you're only buying a hundred pounds of a line, ten pounds is effectively ten percent. So y- mm-hmm. you, you need you need ten percent of performance purely to make up for the cost of buying the fund. That's that's correct. I the costs for buying them are very high from hard leaves. Yeah. As you said, I think it does depend on which stock you go out buying, but all the details are on hard leaves Lansdown, they're all listed on there. Yeah. What I did find very useful from them is they provide you with a lot of information. And I think that's where a lot of the money goes to. I do re- I receive a newspaper from them every, I believe, two weeks or once a month, which gives okay. me kind of a lot of the up-to-date stuff that's happening in the markets. Uh, additionally, they can send you newsletters, I think daily or weekly, again, with all the updates that are happening at the time. They select um, funds and companies to invest into that their own analysts have found. So they'll actually send you kind of suggestions saying like, this might be something of interest to you that we think will do well. I believe there's like a little star next to them, I think. And you can find those online as well. So as a, as someone who's just starting out and trying to kind of learn about finance and all of that stuff, I think paying the extra is, uh, I would say you know, maybe if uh, maybe if you are experiencing looking at a lower cost platform, are there any that you... Um... No, so so I personally use the second largest one it's called Interactive um, mm-hmm. Investor. 
and it's it's I mean cost wise is give or take the same. Um, yeah. I think it's about eight pounds a trade for that, but the I think I think the reality is it, it's it's just more a, a a symptom of being a retail investor. You know, these are unfortunately the costs of execution. Yeah. Um, another platform which which um I don't use personally, but I've I've heard of is called Free Trade. So that's one where there are no trading fees. Having said that. You've got to realize, you know, if there are no upfront trading fees, they work it in somehow. So they work it into the spread of the yeah. um, of the stock. So the spread being being the um, the actual price you pay, you know, that mm-hmm. that what 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 they what they charge you as an end customer might be different from what they pick it up on the other side. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And that kind of raises a question for me. Then is uh, what are your thoughts of Robinhood? And that, and that trading platform kind of coming through US, I believe they're trying to get into the UK market now. UK market. I'm not yeah. sure if they've been already. No, so so um, from what I understand, Robinhood has actually abandoned plans to oh. um, to come to the UK. Um, but I, I think in terms of Robinhood, which is which which gives a lot of ability to do with trade options and trade derivatives and whatnot. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. that's something which would be hard to get in the UK, mainly because of the, the financial rules here. So the FCA, so the Financial Conduct Authority, okay. which is which is the FCA, which is the sort of Financial Conduct Authority, which is effectively the the body that regulates all financial institutions within the UK. Um would has effectively banned all these derivatives or complex products from being marketed or sold to to mm. retail clients. So, so for the most part, it's a lot of the features we hear of people speaking about Robinhood would be unavailable in the UK. See, I wasn't aware of that at all. Actually, I, I was not aware that they've yet. I thought that they were still uh, still trying, still going for it. Yeah, um, but that that's what I heard. Um, having said that, we, we can always see. It might just pop up one day and we'll both be surprised. But exactly, exactly. Yeah. I would be surprised by it at all because I'm, I know that people, I think there was quite a few people I heard who were from the UK at least were still opening accounts with Robinhood and trying to trying to use it for investing. And I think some people have succeeded, some, for some people it didn't work. It's, uh, it's yeah. very dependent, but it was an interesting <laughs> way and then one thing that I was always wondering is where do they actually put their costs in? Because there's obviously going to be some sort of a charge to all the work that they're doing. They have to charge it somehow. So again, it was whether they're increasing the increasing the price of stocks or anything like that. I've I've never actually looked into it that far, but it was yeah. something something interesting. Yeah, certainly. I, I mean, um, I can only speculate here because um, I, I've never used Robinhood myself. But yeah, I, I could imagine if they were to charge fees, they either charge upfront fees, um, you know, per trade or per per account, yeah. or or um, they'll they'll build it into the spread, so build it into the price of, of the asset that you buy or sell. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly, exactly. It's gonna be one. It's there's there's made somewhere. Nothing comes free. Indeed, indeed. Fantastic. That that, that rounds up a very good and detailed chat. I th- I felt like we so, we, yeah. shot, we shot in a few tangents. Um, but it's it's certainly one where hopefully it's been very informative for our audience. 
I hope so. I hope, uh, yeah, I hope that it's been informative and, you know, people can learn something new from it.